Please turn in your Bibles to our text where we continue our study of Romans 5, having just recently, as of last week, resumed our study in this, uh, probably the Apostle Paul's most well-known and uh, probably his greatest letter written for us in the New Testament. You'll find that on page 1119. We always encourage you to have a copy of God's word open before you as we study and examine it together. We've begun uh, just recently our uh, study in Romans 5, which begins what is admittedly the most well-known and well-loved section of this great letter written to the believers in Rome by the Apostle Paul. That section, of course, is Romans 5 through Romans 8. Having established, as he did, in chapters 1 through 4, that all of mankind, and by that Paul always refers to mankind as Jew and Gentile, that's his shorthand for all people, all are guilty, he established before a holy God, dead in trespasses and sins, and under his wrath and condemnation, and are without hope save in his sovereign mercy. He goes on to tell us in those chapters that that sovereign mercy displays itself most clearly in God's manifestation of a righteousness that is from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That means there is hope for man in his lost condition, but that hope is found only outside of the sinner. It's outside of ourselves. It's not found in us or by any works that we do. It is found only in the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God has put forth as a propitiation or a satisfaction to God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This is the gospel, according to Paul. This is the good news for sinful men and women like you and like me this evening. It is, as Paul says in chapter 1, the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Justification is a definitive act of God, and it is based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the one who has faith in him, where he declares the sinner to now be right with God because of what Christ has done. And that definitive act, Paul says, bears great fruit in the life of the believer, in this life and in the life to come. This is what Romans 5 begins to deal with, the fruit or the consequences of justification. What does it mean for us practically in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ? And as we noted last week, and this is very important, Paul is not merely wanting us to know what that fruit is, that is of justification, but he wants us to know that this great work of God in Christ on our behalf means that we are securely his, that this salvation is now and forever will be ours and can never be lost and never taken away. That really, I believe, is the whole purpose and import of these chapters, chapters 5 through Eight. We began this study last week in chapter 5, and tonight we continue by looking more fully at verses 1 and 2, as the Apostle Paul mentions here three very specific consequences, three fruits for the believer who is justified by God. 
who is made right before him through Jesus Christ. And so as we did last week, and for context, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Please stand as we hear God's word read and as we receive it as the very word of God, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All of flesh, that's you and me, and all who have ever lived, and all our loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we indeed are but the grass of the field that is here today and gone tomorrow. And there is no loveliness or beauty in us inherently, but all of our beauty and loveliness is because of what Christ has done and what Christ continues to do in us as he lives by his spirit within us. And so bless us tonight as we receive this word, which never fails, which never goes away. And strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we made a beginning in this study of these three great benefits. And that was intentional because last week we were sort of just getting back into our study after a long uh, break. And so I wanted to spend our time last week really on that one and first benefit, the peace that we now have with God. But Paul introduces here in these first two verses three, actually three benefits, all of them rooted in the fact that we have now already been justified by faith, just like Abraham was, and just like all who, like Abraham, believe God and what he has promised. It is in the past tense, as we noted last week. It speaks of what God has already done for us who believe in Christ and for those alone. For there is no salvation, no right standing before God, apart from the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so it's easy to identify in these first two verses, those three uh, 
benefits or the three fruits of our justification. Last week, again, we noted the first one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second one in verse two, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And the third is that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I want us to study these three again tonight. The first very briefly, just reminding us of what we looked at last week and then spending the rest of the time on the last two of these three. Peace with God, as you'll remember last week, is a peace that is accomplished by God through the work of Jesus and what he did on the cross. We rightly say that the work of Jesus on the cross is a substitutionary death. We'll see that later in chapter five when we talk about our union with Christ, which is very much comparable to our union with Adam. But the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ means that he stood in our place as our substitute before the Father, and he took the wrath of God upon himself. So we call his death substitutionary. We also call it propitiating, which means the satisfaction of God's wrath. It was a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God so that all the wrath of God against all the sins of all his people was fully satisfied by that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, standing in our place before the Father. It is not merely a legal declaration. It is, of course, the language comes from the courtroom, the declaration, the declaring of the sinner now just or having a right standing before God. But it also establishes a relational change or points to a relational change. We are now, the Bible says, friends with God through Jesus Christ. We were once at enmity, as we noted last week. We were enemies with God. Now we are friends. Jesus gave us some hint of this in his words to his disciples. When in John 15, he said these words, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. We have through the Lord Jesus Christ and by this justification by faith, a new relationship with God, no longer at enmity, no longer at war. When God declares peace, as he does here, peace with God, when he declares us to be just based on the work of Christ, the war in which we are engaged always in our natural state is now over and it is over forever. To be sure, believers may incur, may experience his displeasure. They may cause him to respond as a father does who loves his children with chastisement. But never again does God lift up the sword against his children. Never again does he resume the war that he himself has ended through the work of his son. The relationship we now have, Paul says, is peace with God. We briefly noted that we speak often of this 
inner subjective peace that we also long for. And it is important to remind ourselves when we think of this peace with God, that because of the peace with God, we can know the peace of God. As one writer, I think very wisely said, we must know this peace with God to be true for us before we can ever feel it to be true. In other words, we can never know the peace of God, that peace which passes, Paul says, understanding, until we know for certain that we have peace with God, that that new relationship has been established through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's just a brief review and overview of what we studied last week. This leads us into the next two that we'll focus on tonight, two blessings, two benefits, two fruits of our justification. The first is found in the beginning of verse two, as Paul writes, through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now this as peace with God presumes something. And here the presumption is that we don't have access with God in our natural condition. Simply because of sin, we are separated from God. We are not in, because of sin, a relationship with God. Clearly we are at war, but we also have no access to God, no ability to approach him, to draw near to him. Our sin separates us from him. The prophet Habakkuk questioned this as he was considering what God was revealing to him. As God said, I will judge this nation by an even more wicked nation. And you remember Habakkuk's question, how it is, how is it that the eyes of a holy God can behold sin like this? The whole idea is sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. It will be absolutely obliterated. And on the day of judgment, he will finally and forever destroy sin in every part. Sin naturally separates us, provides a lack of access to God. What Paul says here in verse 2 is very, very important. So very important for us to understand that by the justifying work of God in Jesus Christ, we, you and I, as believers, now have free and bold access to God. That is what Paul is actually saying here when he talks about the access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He is talking about the access that we have into the one who gives grace, that is God himself. We have access now into the very presence of the King and the Lord of all the universe. The one who created all things, who sustains all things by the word of his power. The one who is thrice holy. We now, because of the justifying work of God in Jesus Christ, have this access. Now, there are lots of ways to illustrate this. Let me give you two that I think are helpful, both drawn from the scriptures themselves. You remember the story of Esther, don't you, in the book that bears her name in the Old Testament? There is that scene where the writer expresses the great dilemma that Esther faced 
as she herself became aware of the plot to kill the Jews, a plan hatched by wicked Haman. In chapter 4, we read of Esther hearing about the plan and understanding the situation she was in with regard to coming before the king, of having access to him, of entering into his presence. Here is what the writer records for us. Mordecai also gave to the eunuch a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all of the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. The stage, as you know the story well, was set then for what Esther would do and helps us to understand from a human point of view what it meant to go into the presence of an earthly king without permission, without an invitation, without access. But the Lord gave Esther great faith as her words to her uncle Mordecai, uh, or from her uncle Mordecai, pricked her heart. Later in the passage, we read this, Mordecai speaking here, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and the young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, this story is very helpful in reminding us of the impossibility as we compare this story with what we see here in Romans and what Paul is really addressing. The impossibility of a sinner being able to enter in the presence of a holy God. We have no right, no place, no entrance in ourselves, and foolish is the man or woman who thinks that he has or can do so. There is only death that awaits the sinner in the presence of a holy God. But what if there were one to introduce us into that court, one to lead us before the king, who could guarantee our acceptance and reception and welcome? What if there were one through whom we could have access and where the scepter of God's favor would be extended to us? Well, Paul says there is one, and there is only one, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through our being already justified by faith in him. And that's what Paul's saying. Because we are already justified, already made right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have access into the very presence of our God, into the Father's 
presence. Now there's another image that comes from the Bible, another familiar image from the New Testament. In the, in the very moment of Jesus's death upon the cross, where all of this would be in fact uh, completed, this work completed for our justification, we know that the scriptures tell us that the veil in the temple, a very thick, heavy veil, was torn from top to bottom at the moment of his death. That veil, according to the writer to the Hebrews, as we read from Hebrews chapter 10, was the tearing, he says, of the very veil of the flesh of Jesus. That's a picture of, again, the access we now have into the very presence of the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. That image is a powerful image of the access now that is given to every believer in Jesus Christ. I told her last night because I happened to read the poem earlier in the week that to my knowledge, this is the first time that uh, uh, something that was given for Grace Moot will be quoted in a sermon here at Grace Church. May there be many more because we have some very gifted people who write and able to sort of uh, in, in their minds process the truths of God's word and write poems and beautiful stories uh, reflecting their understanding of uh, God's word. But I told Gabrielle, who wrote this poem a year ago, she said, I think a year ago uh, this month, based on Isaiah 53, that I would read a portion of this because I love the way that she captured this tearing of the veil. And we'll get to it in a moment. In the poem, of course, Gabrielle is thinking about Isaiah 53. And in the poem, the good and faithful one that she describes is, of course, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The poem traces his march to the cross by which sinners will be justified by grace through faith in him and what he accomplished. In the very last stanza, we can see a hint of that access or that introduction that we have been talking about with reference to that great veil that hung in the temple and was torn in two, top to bottom. And it is, in my opinion, a beautiful description of this access we now have through Christ. Here's what she wrote, again, meditating, thinking upon Isaiah 53. In the midst of the groanings that cannot be uttered, in the night where sweat runs, runs crimson, where the fear would take him, where he would turn back, you hold his hand one last time, a glimpse of starlight above a blackening sky. And he begs for your will to be done, for glory to be your name. In the deep quiet before the final battle, he remembers, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Sorrow and resolve follow in his wake. The unseen crown glints with heaven's light through thorns. The shroud of blood, now a scarlet robe, Crude nails, his sword of victory, a twisted scepter proclaiming mercy and peace and grace. Blood and water anoint the hallowed ground of his coronation. The veil crumbles to bow before him, and the stars whisper of a resurrected king, he who comes to die and live again. The good and faithful one walks steadily on out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied.
Did you capture that line? It's a beautiful line. The veil crumbles to bow before him. It's the removal of the barrier that existed between sinners and a holy God. That veil coming down represents the access, the introduction to the Father that is now ours through the work of Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones captures it this way. What our Lord Jesus Christ does is to introduce us to God. It's an introduction, he says. We cannot go to him as we are. We are sinful and vile and polluted. Our very righteousness is as filthy rags, and we have nothing to commend us for our clothing, in, for our clothing is unworthy and unsuitable, and we have no right in our own name to ask to be allowed to enter in. But here comes one who has a right of access and entry himself, who having dealt with our sins can take us and present us to God the Father. He introduces us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who does it all. That's what Paul says. Having already been justified by faith, we have this access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Again, that's a reference to the presence of God, but I, I like the imagery of standing. In the Bible, the imagery of standing is a position of boldness, of confidence. It means our feet are firmly planted and entrenched in that space. And we cannot be removed from that place. It speaks of an assurance that is deeply felt because now because of Jesus, that is where we belong in the very presence of God. And that is what Paul says is ours because of the justifying work of God in Christ. But he brings us to the third and final picture here of the fruit or the benefits of our justification. As he writes, we rejoice as well in hope of the glory of God. Now the glory of God refers, I think, to the actual glory of God himself that will be manifested finally and fully on the last day, both in the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the elect. But hope here, as you all, I trust, well know, is not the crossing of fingers hope of humanity. It's not the wishful thinking that we wish something would be true, but rather it is the sure confidence that we have based on the word of God and his promises to us. And what Paul says here is that he has promised, this is what he means, he has promised that he will glorify us, which in the Bible is a picture with respect to the work of Christ in us, of our being made perfect and made like him, fully in his image. The Bible speaks of this in many places. Romans 8 gives us two hints of what this means. In Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider, Paul writes, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. The glory of God manifested in us for all to see. Later in verses 29 and 30, and this is so important for us to see, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's great work in our lives, to conform us to Christ. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then listen. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Past tense a work that is finished, already done, already complete in Jesus Christ. The only thing that remains is the full realization of the glory that God will reveal in us through Jesus Christ. The connection here is important. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Paul says, having been justified, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God which leads Paul to say this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When you think of identity, we're talking about that in our Sunday school class up here in the adult Sunday school class. When you think about identity, add this to the picture and understanding of your identity. You're being transformed into the same image, Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to another, from glory to glory. And, and Paul says, because we have been justified, we have this hope and we rejoice in this hope, this sure and certain promise that we will indeed be glorified. I think that's what Peter means as he writes in his first letter in this idea of rejoicing in this hope. He says, though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you do love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, this idea of rejoicing, Paul is going to build on in verses uh, uh, 3 through 5, and we'll look at those especially next week as he talks about how this rejoicing in the hope of the glory that will be revealed within us helps us in the midst of our sufferings. It enables us to bear up under the sufferings that God appoints in our lives not just to bear up and barely survive, but to rejoice in the midst of those sufferings. Next week, we'll pick up there as we come again to Romans chapter 5. Two things to say as we close, two points to make as you think about these blessings, these benefits, these fruits of your justification. First is this, these benefits, all three of them, and all the other riches that are ours in Christ are ours right now, and they are ours always. That point again, I think, is worth emphasizing every time we come to the book of Romans. They are ours now. We possess them, and they cannot be taken away because they are ours always our justification is ours. We have been already justified. If we are believing in Jesus, we have been justified, made right with God. We have now as a present possession, peace 
with God. The war is over. Stop fighting. Stop lifting up arms again and fighting against God. We have obtained now and possess now an access to the very throne room and presence of God. And we have a hope which is in us, a hope that is tied to the anchor that is in the heavenly places that will not disappoint, a hope of the glory of God. We have the sure and certain promise of God that he will not withdraw. I was thinking this morning as I was listening to Pastor Fisher's sermon on 1 Timothy that one of the main ways in which the Lord prepares us for battle to fight the good fight of the faith is by reminding us over and over again of these truths that these are already ours. They're already present possessions that can never be lost. Imagine, as he reminded us this morning, of the great zeal and boldness we have in this battle to know that we already have peace with God. We already have bold access into the grace in which we stand. We already have the promise of glory and the sure hope of that. That makes us warriors fit for battle because everything rests on what Jesus Christ has done. And so here again, we see the Lord encouraging us and bringing these two sermons together and reminding us that our great battle that we face is enabled by our understanding of these truths. It's a great encouragement that these can never, ever be lost. They're ours now. They are ours forever. The second point really comes as I was reflecting upon all that Paul writes in these two verses with a real emphasis upon the bold and free access that we have. This was particularly impressed upon my own heart as I studied this week and remembered my own testimony, as most of you have heard at various times. I grew up, of course, as many of you know, in the Roman Catholic Church. The first 19 years of my life, Roman Catholic school, all of my grade school and high school prior to my conversion. And I often share in my testimony, as I share it with others, that one of the things that troubled me the most, and I believe one of the things the Lord used to give me sort of an unsettled feeling about what I was believing and living out in my faith at that time, was this whole practice of penance or confession. It played a significant role in my eventual conversion. It was during my teenage years that I began to question the practice of coming before a priest to confess my sins for that week. We were expected in the school I went to and the teaching I heard every Saturday to go to confession prior to mass on Sunday. It's amazing as I think back to those days that I can still say the words in my head that you're supposed to say when you come into that confessional. It was a dark place, somewhat scary for a child, and you would sit before a silhouette of the priest who was on the other side of this veil, if you will. And he was on duty that particular day. And I remember thinking in my teenage years, as the Lord, I believe, was working in my life, why did I have to talk to him about this? Why did I have to sit in this dark room and tell him my sins? I remember thinking, why couldn't I go directly to God and confess my sins to him? 
And this comical thought came into my mind, even as a teenager. Was there some kind of uh, sort of manual that they had, depending on the number of the sins and the kind of sins, that they would then tell you how many Hail Marys and Our Fathers to say? I began thinking, what's the process here? What's the math of all of this? How do you know I'm supposed to say this many and not like one more of each? And so it was confusing to me. It was very confusing. It troubled me. It literally troubled me uh, to the point where I said, I I don't want to be involved in this anymore. And so I began to withdraw from the church and practicing my faith as uh, I expressed it at that that time. And so when I was converted, one of the first things that was impressed upon my heart and mind was that now through Christ, I had direct access to God at any moment, at any time. I could come to him as a child to a father, and I knew that I was welcomed, always welcomed, never turned away, never resisted. That truth has been firmly set into my life as I live each day now in communion with God. I speak to him constantly, constantly in my mind. And if you're with me, if I'm driving and you're not because I'm alone out loud, constantly talking to God, praying always and without ceasing, without a hint that I am never welcomed and that I need to have, or that I need to have someone else intercede on my behalf other than my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have bold and free access into the throne room of his grace wherein I stand. Now, that may not be your experience with respect to praying ceaselessly or endlessly, constantly through the day, as well as other set times, But I trust if you are a Christian here tonight, you know that you do have this bold and free access that Christ has won for you through being justified by faith in him. That means even when you sin. It means even when you sin. Even when you sin and your actions and behavior are not what they ought to be, do you understand that you immediately, as God would prompt you by his spirit, you immediately have the right to go into his presence. And he's not going to turn you away if you're his. He's not going to say you did too much. I can't hear you. But when you go with true repentance and faith, believing in God, drawing near to him through Christ, you have access to go before him. Hebrews 4 says it this way as we close. Since then, we have such a great high priest, not that sits in a confessional, but the one who is in heaven, who has passed through the heavens, even Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then... Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These things are ours, brothers and sisters. They can never be taken away. They are the benefits we enjoy now because we have already been justified by God through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, 
We often say how rich we are, not in the things of this world, but in the things of glory, of heaven, the riches that are ours in Christ, an inheritance that is imperishable and kept for us. But Lord, our riches now transcend even heaven itself because we have been brought into this new relationship now and we possess the fruits and the joys and the benefits of that justification now as we consider the peace we have with you through Christ, as we consider the glory and the wonder of our access at any moment, at any time, and as we reflect upon and consider the hope of the glory that will be revealed in us. We thank you, our Father, for these great gifts and pray that you would remind us of these things in the battles we face this week and that you would be glorified in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.